0: You know, uh, a lot of people would say that the first sentence of any book or any letter is the most important sentence you can write in a book or a letter because it tells you if it's worth reading. It tells you if you should go on. In Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 1, the first sentence is the greatest sentence I've ever heard in my life. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the most amazing truth that that doesn't move you, if it doesn't just deeply move you, then I got a couple of things to tell you. One is you don't get how bad you are. And two, you don't get how powerful Jesus is to make that statement true of people who confess Him and trust in Him. Um, But there's this wonderful little series of thoughts that Paul tells us right after he lobs that unbelievable sentence on us. If if you're a thinking person, you hear that statement, you go, how is that possible? How can it be that God could find no condemnation on sinners, because I know how bad I am, and uh, if you're honest, maybe you um, hate a look in the mirror too, but here's what we know. In verse 3, Paul says, for God has done. Every answer any sinner ever needs to know or hear is that second sentence. God has done it. God has made a way God condemned Jesus for us. That's why there's no condemnation on us. He poured it out on his son. He opens our eyes to see our sin to such a level we cry help because there is no other option. It is the reality that God takes his spirit and he transforms our lives. He fulfills all by Christ. He fulfills all the requirements that God has for people and grants it to us. He imputes his righteousness. We need a covering God gives us Jesus. Amen? A wonderful truth. And then he's in the business of transforming us. Verses 3 through 13 is explaining all that God has done in that reality for us, to make that statement true. Last week, Paul did a great job um, talking about what God did in making us his children, adopting us as sons and and daughters, making us heirs of, of the king. But he kind of left us hanging at verse 7. To be honest, there's a couple of thoughts in there that I think need some time. And although briefly, we need to, we need to deal with it. So let's go back and look at verses 16 and 17 and, and talk about the inheritance we have because of Christ. Okay? So let's, let's look at these verses. Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I I love how the apostle um, always has the big picture in his mind. He's not ever writing ever without the thought of what it is today and what it is tomorrow. There is a now and later approach to Paul's writings. And we have spent several weeks talking about the now part of what God has given us in Christ. We've talked about our salvation. It is as real and as true and as permanent and as perfect right now as it ever will be. You are positionally holy before God. That's the only way we can have a relationship with him. We are truly saved. Amen, church? That is ours today. There's Spirit's presence in us today, working in our lives today. We have relationship with God, as Paul describes it, as sons of God. That's unbelievable. That's the now aspect of this reality of the kingdom. But there's this also later aspect that we're getting into today, and, and Paul brings up the idea of an inheritance, something to, to look forward to. And the scriptures have many, many things to talk about or to say regarding what we have to look forward to, church. So I want to just briefly mention them because I'm hoping when we're all said and done, you feel within within inside of you just this really overwhelming sense of, I want to worship God. That is unbelievable. And so there, there are truths that apply to those who confess Jesus. One of them is obvious. There is a home in heaven for us. Um, Jesus, when he was, uh, in fact, I would call it probably the most poignant words ever from Jesus. I mean, some would argue the Sermon on the Mount. But chapter 13 of John to chapter 17 of John is when he's in the upper room with his disciples. He's talking about him what he's coming to do, and he has to die for sins. Now, I don't think they got it, but he kept telling stories and kept dealing with significant issues, and in that four or five-chapter window, it is, it is the time where Jesus stoops down and demonstrates humility and washes his disciples' feet, talking about how to love, like God loves us. It's in that same five-chapter window where he confronts Judas about his potential betrayal or his inevitable betrayal. He confronts Peter about his denial. And right after that, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And wrapped right in the middle of that is this promise for his children that there's a home to look forward to. And he says this in John 14, 1 through 3, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We have, church, a future home in heaven waiting for us. Amen? That's an inheritance Paul is referring to here as children of God. There's another aspect of our inheritance. It is, uh, in fact, I was wrestling this week to try to pick words that would make you go, oh, okay, I get it. And I don't know if I found the right words, but let's try them. Joy, fellowship, celebration. Whatever it is to have a party this, that side of, of here, that's what the Bible promises for the children of God. In fact, in, in Revelation chapter 19, John has been ta- is being given by an angel a picture of what the future will be, and he describes it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. This, and he's in chapter 19 talking about the celebration with the Lord. Jesus many, many times talks about uh, banquets and feasts in a parable setting to describe what it will be like when we get there. All I know, it will be a party off the hook, that's a paraphrase, of what it's going to be like in heaven, free from sin, free from this world, and present with the Lord. There's a future joy, celebration, and fellowship to look forward to. There's another aspect of our inheritance. We get to reign with Jesus. We get to reign with Jesus. Paul tells Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We get to reign with him, authority with him. Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, he tells a parable about what it's like to steward and manage what God gives us now, and based on how we manage now, we'll have authority in the future. There is a reality that we get to reign over what God gives in this world in the future tense for, for his children. There's a future reigning. There is also this reality. We will be like Jesus. We'll be like Jesus, church. Church. You know that that focus on the kingdom all the time, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength without any competition kind of mindset? We get to be like Jesus. In fact, John tells us, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. There is a reality coming, an inheritance coming where we will take on all of those demeanors and all of those behaviors and all of those things that our Savior demonstrates because his focus is clearly not interrupted with sin. And so our life won't be interrupted with sin and our our worship will be true and it will be pure and uninterrupted. With all that said, and that's really good stuff, and some would call it the gravy, I'm gonna tell you the ultimate, the ultimate inheritance is that we get God. We get God. You know, um, when I hear people talk about heaven, and, and I understand how this can happen, um, it sounds almost, and I, I don't mean this to be ju- too judgmental, but it almost sounds like idolatry. Because the way, the way the church sometimes describes heaven is more like a more precise, more enjoyable version of what they like down here on earth and say, I'm good with that, as long as he makes all the things I love better there, I'm good. They almost describe heaven like they don't care if God's there or not. I'm free from sickness, and I'm free from sadness, and I can drive a Ferrari or whatever they're thinking, and I can have it great on that side of this world. And I'm telling you here, the prize of our inheritance is we get God. He's everything to us. Now, if you can't perceive that, if you don't love that, that shows you how cloudy sin has made us. It twists us. It makes us think that something here, something here is better than him, right? That's that worship disorder that we deal with. But the reality of it is this. David said it this way. Watch. He said it in Psalm 16. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full joy, overflowing joy, pleasures that can't be described or contained. In your presence, God, is the prize of our inheritance. Amen? Amen. That's what we get to look forward to. That is an awesome, awesome truth. But if you were paying attention when I read verse 17, you have a question. There's a conditional phrase in there. Look what it says, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's the the phrase. Provided we suffer. Now, nobody wants to tell you, church, that one of the parts of your inheritance is suffering, but there you go. Merry Christmas. Have a great day. That's part of the birthright, suffering. Now, I have to confess, I've been wrestling with this passage for a couple of weeks um, because I think it's hard to preach. I think it's hard to understand and contextualize in America. To be honest with you, I don't know how to talk about suffering in such a way you go, yes, I make, it makes sense to me. But here's the point. The text tells us that part of being an heir is that we suffer suffer. Uh, The word suffer here is referring to the kind of suffering you experience because of your relationship with Jesus, okay? Not the kind of suffering that happens because of the fall. Now, we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about the weaknesses in our flesh and all the junk that happens because of sin in the world. This particular suffering is directly connected to your relationship to Jesus and how the world responds to that in you, get it? So it's a very particular kind of suffering. I want you to notice the word provided too, because you can make the mistake that somehow Paul is suggesting that it's maybe or maybe not. The word really means uh, not if, but since. In other words, it's as, as is the fact you're going to suffer. So let me just make sure you understand what verse 17 says. Two, two aspects to it. You will suffer. That's what he says here. And it seems to fit with everything else the scripture tells us about belonging to Jesus. In fact, let me remind you a few of them. These are Jesus' words, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you, and it's going to hate you. He also says in Luke 21, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. When Paul was instructing Timothy, the young pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, indeed, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Now, that's one of those promises of God I don't like but it's a promise. So, you will suffer. First truth, verse 17. Second truth is you won't suffer alone. Look, look at what he says, provided that we suffer with him. The reality of it is, and we're going we're gonna to unpack this next week, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to Christians, but we're never alone in our suffering. Ever, ever alone. When, when uh, the Lord told told Isaiah to write this down. In Isaiah chapter 43, he is describing the presence of God in the midst of the garbage of this world and the suffering that we go through. He says this, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's a true statement. We're not alone in the suffering. But remember what I said, it's a very specific kind of suffering. I I describe it this way, it is when the world pushes back on the Jesus in you, that kind of suffering. I call it the birthmark of new birth. That's what Paul, I think, describes, the reality that we will take on that, that suffering. Now, I wrestled with this so much to try to contextualize to an American audience who, by and large, never suffers. Because if you're like me, the first thing you think of is suffering, you think persecution, right? You, you think of the Middle East and you think of China and you think of Africa where they're lopping people's heads off and killing and raping and murdering and burning and imprisoning and you go, well, that ain't me. Is that the kind of suffering that, that Paul now promises and guarantees for church? I hope not because I don't know how to tell you that this fits in your life without some other... Explanation, But the reality of it is, it does involve persecution. In fact, I found this article. It's only nine days old. Dated uh, uh, in January 7th, 2014. In recent months, a new consensus has emerged. For the first time in a millennia, Judaism has lost its titles, the most persecuted religion. Today, that dubious honor goes to Christianity. Christians are targeted more than any other body of believers, wrote uh, Rupert Short in a 54-page report for the London-based Savitas Institute in December, which meticulously documented their persecution on a country-by-country basis. Even politicians have begun grasping this fact. The German Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel publicly deemed Christianity the most persecuted religion in the world in November. And in short, as one commentator put it this last week, Christians have become the new Jews. I, I read this to Neil on Wednesday, and he goes, oh, great. So, <laughs> he's Jewish Christian, so he's got it coming and going, and uh, he wasn't happy about that report. But the reality of it is, that's what you think when you think suffer for Jesus' sake. You think the worst of the worst, right? And it does include that. And you might, if you're, if you're interested, ask questions, why is that not happening? And I got a couple ideas. They're not Bible ideas. They're just a couple ideas. One is the possibility that God just said, not now. Not now, not for them. Not here. And God could have just put a little hedge around us and said, okay, uh, it, it's just going to be for you. You're just not going to experience what the Middle East experience. You're not going to go through a China thing. In fact, we got, we got departments in our government that would protect our right to meet and talk about this stuff that we do right now. Not, not so in other parts of the world. And so there's a possibility that God has just said, not now. There's a possibility, too, that there's just no threat. John MacArthur said this. Self-centered Christians who serve the Lord half-heartedly seldom have to pay a price for their faith. They are of little threat to Satan's work because they are of little benefit to Christ's. There's a possibility that there's no threat to Satan, so he's leaving us alone. We're just the perpetual knuckleheads that help him, not hurt him, so there's no suffering. That's a possibility. You sort that out. Now, whether or not God has persecution for you, that's his business, but I know these next two aspects of of suffering are absolutely true of of everybody I meet. This second one is, is true even in our world, even in America, and that is the idea of being ridiculed, rejected, and mocked for the sake of Christ. For instance, we have counseling department where couples come in, and there's a marriage crisis, and there's a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, and all hell is breaking loose, and the unbelieving spouse has no interest, no desire for the things of Christ at all, makes life miserable for, and ends up leaving and abandoning, that stuff happens. That's for the sake of Christ. It's suffering for Christ. You might be one of those people who say, I am going to do business ethically, and you at work hold the line on ethical business, and yet it's not profitable according to them. And so you don't get the raise, you don't get the promotion, you get fired for holding a line on truth. And on and on and on it goes, right? I read some of this to my kids a week ago or talked about suffering and they would talk about school and how, you know, it's not it's not like you're going to get beheaded for these things, but there's mocking going on and belittling that happens. That That stuff happens here, Someone just sees you as a weak-minded individual and they put you down for it and they marginalize you and exclude you and leave you and reject you. That's part of the suffering that Paul's got in mind here. But there's a third aspect of suffering that's universally true for every Christian who breathes. And it is the suffering of dying to yourself every day. Jesus said, follow me, but here's how you do it. You, You take up your cross and you follow me. And you die to yourself every day. Here's what a Christian does. We wake up and go, you know what? My mind, or not my mind, but my, kind of my flesh wants what it wants. It wants to be right. It wants to be respected. And what, what faith does in us, what the Spirit of God does in us, and says, no, 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 you, you, you can be small. You don't have to win. You don't, you don't have to hold a grudge. You can forgive out of the resources of forgiveness that God has provided you in Christ. And we constantly, every day, lay down our lives a thousand times a day. Because flesh would go the opposite all the time, wouldn't it? When it's proud or stubborn or arrogant or lusting or materialistic and whatever, we keep going, no, there's a greater truth. There's a greater truth. And we're dying to ourselves every day. And I think those aspects are the kinds of suffering that Paul suggests is what Christians have to go through, provided we suffer. So I'm just saying, if you're a quote-unquote, confessing believer, and you see no tension whatsoever in your life or existence. There is nobody wrestling with the Jesus in you whatsoever. If there is no laying down of your life, no suffering loss for the sake of following Christ at all, then you ought to take some assessments of your faith because the Bible says you will suffer. It's a promise. That's the truth. But look at what Paul says about suffering in Verse 18. For I consider, that's the same word we use from chapter 6. It's the bookkeeping term. Like, I've counted it logically. I'm adding these things up. And he says, I've considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here's what Paul says. Church, when it comes to suffering, look to the future. Keep your perspective about you. The blessings to come are so much greater than the suffering you're going through right now. In fact, he says it's not even worth comparing. The idea of glory is this weighty thing. Like the weight of God's glory, everything that God has. It's like if you put the greatness of God on a scale, and you put your suffering on the other side of the scale, the scale would tip over, right? The greatness and the glory and the future of God for his people so much greater than the temporary sufferings we have right now. Suffering is barely a pixel on the picture, and and glory is infinite. On and on and on and on in the presence of God. You know, uh, you know the name Jim Elliot, right? A lot, a lot of people do. Some of you don't. Jim Elliot was a missionary back in the you know, 50s or whatever. and He went to a particular Indian tribe in Ecuador, 50-whatever, and was killed by those Indians. He went to tell about Jesus. Uh, his diary has been published and someone found, I think, in 1949 or something, this very, very young man contemplating the cost. He wrote this phrase. I, I know most of us are familiar with it. It's powerful. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. His perspective on the kingdom and suffering, thinking about the future, he's going, Is no comparison. No comparison whatsoever. That's what Paul is doing here. And it's with that mindset on the future, his mindset on heaven, that Paul brings up this topic of groaning of all things. And I want us to study that a little bit here in verses 19 through 22. Paul brings up this reality. The first thing he tells us is that creation is groaning for tomorrow, okay? Starting in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why is creation groaning? There is two things that Paul puts in this passage for us that tells us. One is the word futility. It is the idea of... uh, of condemned to frustration, it's creation going and knowing it's not the way it's supposed to be. God did not make it this twisted and it's broken, right? It's messed up. And so creation groans against the frustration that it isn't wired like this. It's not supposed to be like this. The other word that he talks about why creation groans or phrase is bondage to corruption, which simply means process of decay. This whole thing's falling apart. It's not getting better. Why? Because it's under the condemnation of God for the fall, sin. It's subjected by God to this condemnation. In in other words, there was a cosmic effect to Adam and Eve saying, no, I don't believe God. Not today. You, You know the story in Genesis 3, right? I want to remind it. It'll be up on the screen. But let me just remind you of the outcome from God for the fall. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Curse it is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of Adam's sin and rebellion. There's thorns and there's thistles and there's trouble and there's work and it's broken. There are things, uh, it seems like every day I wake up, there is another natural disaster. There are tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes and stuff happening everywhere. The Bible says, hey, God gives man the task of having dominion over animals. Now we can't even do that without resistance. Everything's broken. Everything's twisted. It's not the way that God made it. And it's broken because of sin, but I want to give you a sneak preview of what it's going to be like, what it was like, and what it will be again. In Isaiah, God says this, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, he says, "...the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra." And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is the way it was, and the way God will make it again one day when things will be in order. And creation knows it's out of order, and it groans for that day. Paul says that it sees the future glory that we're going to receive, and it's going, Come on, come on, come on. This is not right. I want it. In other words, as Paul puts it here in context, the glory to come is worth the pain in the present. Even creation knows that. Even creation's groaning for it. It knows that the coming future, you know, God restoring all things the way they were supposed to be is worth the present pain. It's interesting that Paul uses the illustration of child pains, the childbirth pains, to, to describe this scenario, right? Ladies, I got one question for you why ever would you have a second child? (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? One answer, it's worth it, right? I I don't know why I have four sons, because I'm absolutely convinced after the first one, I wouldn't have a second one, because the way I screwed this whole thing up, but um, I was kind of cavalier and unfamiliar with how to do this when we got pregnant with Ben. And I decided, you know, we, we didn't have any insurance. I did everything the wrong way. Um, and I, someone had perpetrated the evil notion that if you get to the hospital before midnight, you had to pay for the day before. So I looked at Sue before we had this baby and go, honey, no matter what happens? We're not going in before midnight. Well, we're sitting out in front of the hospital <laughs> at 10 o'clock waiting for midnight and 30 below a windshield in a soft top Jeep while she's got three minute apart contractions. Yeah, so we got in there, and they were really kind, but they said, honey, there's nothing we could do. You're just going to have to deliver. No pain meds, no nothing, just deliver. So I'm just saying this natural thing isn't what it's cracked up to be. (laughs) God said, pain you're going to have in childbearing, and it's true. Why Why would she have another? Why would she have three? One answer. It's worth it. And Paul uses the illustration of that horrible, horrible temporary pain. The joy of the child so far exceeds the weight of the suffering, of course. And here we are at church. We're kind of struggling through limited perspective, right? Still wrestling with the sin in our lives, seeing a, pu- a future glory that's going to be ours. And, and, and Paul's just reminding the church just hang in there, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what God has planned for you. Keep that in your mind. By the way, creation knows that, and it's groaning for the future as well. So Paul says creation endures in the confident hope that God is going to kind of recreate and make things right. Hope is the word guarantee, not like, oh, I'm hoping so or I wish so. It's guaranteeing. Creation is, is counting on the guarantee of a future recreation of all things made right. Man. Paul brings in another groaning. He brings in our groaning, church, in verse 23. He tells us that uh, creation isn't the only one. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I-, I want you to think and remember three aspects to our salvation, just so you understand what Paul is emphasizing here. There is a there is a we are saved part of our salvation. We've just spent lots of time on that. There is a, another reality that we are being saved, and we've talked about that the last chapter, and then there's this future we're going to be saved part of this. So let me just re- rewind and review a little bit so we understand what Paul is saying here. We are saved, church, which means everything that needs to take place for sinners to not be condemned and be forever in the presence of God in heaven has taken place in the work of Jesus Christ for us. Amen? That is, that is a settled issue. Jesus died for us. He really paid it all. We have been redeemed. We've been declared not guilty because Jesus was declared guilty. So we are saved. Everyone agree? There's this, this reality about us being saved, ongoing, that is also part of Paul's writings. And that is, we've learned it in chapter six through chapter eight, that we are still in this fight between the flesh and the spirit. There's this God-authored soul of me wrapped in this sinful flesh that hasn't been redeemed, and they don't like each other's game. They fight against each other constantly, okay? And so we're still repenting of sin. We still see victory every once in a while, every day, every week. We still are growing in our faith, believing what we read and know versus what we see. We're still walking and learning in those things. We're still in the process of growing. In essence, cut me some slack, but we're being saved. And then there's this reality of a future salvation, this third aspect of of when we get to heaven, when our sinful nature will be exchanged for for Christ-like bodies, right? When we trade in this flesh for a glorified body that doesn't resist the will of God or the glory of God or the will of God, all those things, all the effects and the flinches of sin and failure will be gone completely. And here's what we need to know, and this is what Paul's saying here. Only then will we experience everything that God intends for us to know in salvation. It's all of that. It's all of it. Not one aspect. It's all of it. All three of it. Not only being saved from the penalty of sin, it's the reality that we are saved now with the power of God in this, and there's a future presence with God that's coming for the church. That's what we know. So Paul says it this way, talking about how we groan and why we groan. He says, just give us motivations. He talks about this first fruits of the Spirit. So, So let me define for you what he's talking about here. He's suggesting that what we've already seen God do in our life is enough to believe that he's going to do something great tomorrow. When you talk about first fruits, you can think about a farmer. We're not farmers today, really, but, but if you were a farmer, pretend, and you were, a, you were a corn grower, and you had hired hands, and you wanted to know if the crop was ready to harvest, and you would send your hired hand out into the field to pick a, an ear of corn, to bring it back, to see if it's ready. That's how you would know. It looks good. The evidence is there. It's worth harvesting. God is talking about what the Spirit has done in our lives as evidence that we can count on tomorrow. Amen. There's a truth about this. We see the work of God in our lives now, the change and the, and the faith. And, and Paul says it's a foretaste of what's to come. And the taste is so good, by the way, so good, by the way, that we groan for more. Make sense? So verse 23 also offers us a confusing phrase if you've been around for a couple of weeks. And the, the phrase is this. As we eagerly wait the adoption as sons. It's confusing because last week Paul talked about us already being adopted, a past tense activity that the Spirit has done. He has adopted us into his family, called us children of God. We've talked about being heirs, what, what is inevitably going to be ours. But Paul here uses it in kind of a future tense that's something that hasn't happened. And it's easy to explain because in the Roman culture, there were two ways to view adoption. One is we're very familiar in America. One, one is the, where you go from, transfer from one family to another family, you know, where you just become the name, the last name of this person. It's what we have here. This other aspect's a little bit unfamiliar to our culture. It's, it's, it's when the son of a leading Roman family um, was acknowledged publicly for the first time and granted all that was his. It's kind of like the equivalent of the Jewish bar mitzvah. He's now a man, everybody. We threw a party. The whole world's here to see this man now. We identify him for who he is. That's the idea that Paul says is waiting for us. There's an adoption of sons. So I want you to picture how this is going to go down. There is going to be a day where we stand with our Father and He's going to present us His children to the hosts of heaven and saying, These are my kids. I don't know how to get your head around that. I don't know how you get emotionally attached to that, but God is going to stick his chest out and, and boast about his redeemed ones, his children. He's going to tell the host of heaven, all the angels, hey, these are my children. This is what I was doing. This is what this whole story was about. This is why Jesus went there. And, and we're going to be presented that future adoption. Paul also finishes verse 23 with this, this truth that we can look forward to new bodies. And we've been talking about this. But just like Jesus' resurrected body, it will be pain-free and trouble-free and healthy Ageless, totally suited for a life in heaven for eternity, whatever that looks like. A wonderful thing to look forward to, and we groan for that day. Amen? One other groaning, and we're only going to just touch on it because next week is the whole message on the Spirit of God, but in verses 26 and 27, he talks about the Spirit's groaning for us. Now, look at it. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the, the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's what we know. Creation is groaning for the recreation of the world, to be made right and put right the way God intended it to be. We are groaning to be adopted and presented before the hosts of heaven as God's children, with perfect bodies free from sin and stain. Amen? And the Holy Spirit longs for God's will to be done in our lives too. And he prays for us and he prays for it. And next week we're going to come back and talk about how active and present the Spirit of God is. And specifically in this category of weaknesses. Which brings in a whole other series of thoughts about the fall and the effects of the fall in our life. But there's a reality of the Spirit's groaning too. So can I leave you with just two simple things to consider. Two simple so what's. Here's the first one. Groaning is normal. Notice I said groaning, not whining. There's a big difference between whining and groaning. Whining complains that somehow God is not on duty, or that somehow he doesn't know what he's doing, or you don't like his activity in your life. That's not what we're talking about. Groaning is this idea that all the sin and all the sickness and all the brokenness and the death and the tragedy, all this garbage should make you, every time you see it, go, oh, I can't wait, right? Right? The older I get, now, I did not have that ability when I was 25. Couldn't get there. I mean, they would talk about heaven. i go, yeah, whatever. Because I was convinced that what I was doing right now was pretty good. The older I get, I want it bad. Sometimes I don't want to come to work, to be really honest. I don't want to have these conversations, and I don't want to meet these people, and I I don't want to hear these stories. I I change the channel. I, I find myself watching black and white TV shows, all right? These happy, you know, skippity doo shows because I don't want to think about the pain anymore. I just want out, you know? And I'm not trying to bury my head in the sand. I'm just saying, I think, I think that's groaning. I think when you see the waste of this world and the junk and everything out of order and it's not the way it's supposed to be, we long to go home. Second thing I want to leave you with, have hope. Look at verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is, is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In, in the Bible, hope um, does not ever imply wishful thinking. It, is, it doesn't involve rabbits' foots or crossed fingers. Hope never ever implies, man, come through. It never does that. Hope is certainty. Anchored in the confidence that God made a promise, and God keeps his promises. Man, you should smile or something. (laughs) Is that not true? God made a promise to redeem you. He made a promise to restore you and renew you. He made a promise to take all this junk and all this garbage that just pounds on your life that you want out of so bad. He promised to refine you with it. He promised not to waste one pain in your life. He promised to bring you to him and reveal you to them as his child. It's too good to to believe we have this hope. Our hope of eternal life is certain because our Savior rose from the dead and he said, you're going to live. You're going to live even if you die, you're going to live. What if we dreamt more about the future day when we will step through the door of death into eternity to meet the smile of Jesus and hear the words, welcome home. What if we thought more about being in the arms of Jesus? What would happen if we spent more time imagining that time when our Lord will introduce us to the heavenly host with the words, I want you to meet my kid. I'm gonna give you four words. Four words, this is what would happen. Joy, perspective, endurance, worship. That's what's coming out of our life if we can groan for tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus. These words are foolish words without a Savior, without a righteousness not of our own, one completely granted to us by faith alone. God, we have this to look forward to. We groan for it. God, right now, um, honestly, we'd take it. We pray for Christ's return for us. In the meantime, God, we do groan the right way. When we see everything out of order and broken as it is because of our choices and our sin and the fall of man, we celebrate that you had a better way. And you will make all things right. Because of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.